in a decaying world filled with conflict. Mortals struggle to prove their worth. Take on the role of a combatant and rise. Do not let yourself become dust. This week on Schedule for Launch, join me, Zach Walsh, as I talk with Joel about his upcoming tabletop role-playing game, Dust in a Desert Setting. Take on the role of a being on your path towards ascension. We talk design, limiting yourself, and working with others. Welcome to Schedule for Launch, a podcast to discover the projects that you may have missed. This week, I am very excited to be welcoming in a brand new creator, the youngest I think we've had on the show so far. Joel, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast this week. Uh, yeah, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. We actually have a little bit of a connection there. We were introduced through Rix, who was on recently to talk about his game. And when he told me about Dust, I got very excited. The art for it is very cool, and I'm super excited to learn a little bit more about it and to, to hear about how this game came to be. Glad to see I've got a lot of good feedback on the art, and I'm glad to see that a lot of people are enjoying when I do posts and stuff on Twitter and all that. And we're going to be talking about Dust in just a second, but before we really get into that, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself first? Uh, I am Joel. I'm a very new tabletop games writer. I started, I think, maybe two years ago writing a game that went from a hack for D&D 5e to its own setting and eventually just writing up enough homebrew rules that I could start organizing it into its own thing to recently, I think maybe a terrible dates, but a few months ago <laughs> releasing Star and City, which was a project that I wanted to make inspired by one of my favorite uh, video games at the time, still one of my favorite. Uh, and now I'm working on Dust, something that I hope to really releasing in the next few months. And one of my, I, I think I would say just kind of most original products that I'm putting a lot of effort in to make sure it has its own identity. I'm super excited to learn a little bit more about that. But you were talking about Star and City. What was the inspiration for that, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, it's a combination of a bunch of different games and products by the company Project Moon. They make okay. Lobotomy Corporation, uh, Library of Runia, and they also do a few books and comics and stuff, or like webcomics and webbooks in uh, the same setting as both of those games. Okay. What's their genre then? Sort of... Do you know SCP? Yeah, I love SCP. It's a interesting interpretation of that sort of setting where there's these strange supernatural happenings in a modern or slightly, in their case, futuristic world where there are all these groups that are working to sort of keep it under wraps, make sure the average person doesn't need to deal with it. 
And in oh, their okay. case, there's a lot of specific references to different um, classical literature and stuff, and there's clearly a lot of research and thought going into their stories that I really, really enjoy. Okay, it kind of reminds me of The Secret World as well, which is a personal favorite IP of mine that's getting an RPG soon. That is kind of like where that game started, and that's where you started, and you started as a 5e designer. Can you tell us what Dust is then? Dust is an attempt at a a bit more of a minimalistic uh, tactical tabletop RPG, since a lot of my other projects have been very hyper-complex and a lot of times to their detriment. Mm. Dust is what a friend of mine describes as a battle egg, where the combat is very preset. The map is always the same size, you're always working with the same resources, and it's more so about working within those confines, both as a designer and as a player, to create interesting tactical situations. Okay, so you have this... I'm going to say grid for now. We'll, we'll say grid, because that's... I think, okay, it's it's a way to... I think audience can also kind of picture that in your head. So you have this, like, tactical war ground, and you build... Am I right in assuming that it's like a tactical combat scenarios then in as part of it, I should say? Yes, it's got a big focus on tactical combat. Okay, so what are some of the inspirations for that? That A big thing is mainly Darkest Dungeon and Dark Souls for two different reasons. I love Darkest Dungeon. Dark Souls is a big inspiration for the setting and the lore and a lot of the kind of just vibes of the game, where uh-huh. Darkest Dungeon is also a battle egg in a way, where it's, if you want to think of it as a grid, Darkest Dungeon is a one by eight with four enemy squares and four player squares, Yeah. where in Dust is a big, bigger five by five map uh, with more classic for tactical tabletop games at least. Uh, grid-based movement and stuff like that. Okay. So, you have this 5x5 five five where you and... Is this a tabletop role-playing game for more than one person? Is it a like solo RPG, or is this like a group RPG in the vein of, like for comparison, like 5e? It's like 5e, it's a group with uh, ideally somewhere around four to five to six players against okay. a narrator, the version of the GM or DM. Yeah, okay. So you all take on a role of a mortal. Why is that so special in Dust? Similarly to Dark Souls, which is the main re- the, mainly this whole thing about the mortals, comes from an idea in the Dark Souls franchise and other from software games that it's a bit of an allegory, at least in in Dark Souls, that as a player, you're going through this very brutal game uh, in in the meta sense, uh, that Dark Souls is constantly keeping you outmatched, you're supposed to be kind of trudging through it, and within the lore of the game, 
even if you are the chosen undead or, or, or the tarnished or whatever, you got the special title, you're still the undead. You are basically the same thing as most of the enemies you're fighting, with the only difference is that you, as a player, keep moving forward, doing your thing, going on in the world to face these larger-than-life uh, enemies and threats. Where, in Dust, that is translated with the three main, I guess, like species or social classes of the setting of the Ascended, the Mortals, and the Forsaken, where you as a mortal, uh, at any time, basically, could be struck down to be the kind of generic zombie skeleton mooks that are the Forsaken. So you have this brutal world where you're constantly being beaten down. It's in kind of a sense is this like a game where because you've you've mentioned that it's a little bit more difficult it's tactical do player characters and like players who aren't the narrator need to worry about losing their character to death and such like that or is it like dark souls where if your character dies if they're struck down there are some repercussions but ultimately you can keep playing uh yeah i would say it's closer to that I really, as a tabletop game player, I really don't like the idea of um, that group that's like, oh, it's not real D&D unless a party member dies, and it's like, yeah, I, I don't know. The, the whole point of this genre is to sort of build up these groups and these dynamics between characters, <laughs> um, and losing a character is like, as, from like a game design standpoint, and as like a more video gamey look at it makes sense. Like it is a high risk for you to worry about. It makes people get more invested into it. But there's just so many caveats and risks to it. But I like the idea more so that this game is difficult in a way that all of your actions are very high risk. Everyone does a ton of damage. People have low health. But generally you're not gonna be straight up losing your character all the time. It's just there to enforce the idea that when you take an action, when you when you hit a guy, when you do a thing, um, you're going to be expending a lot and you're going to be doing a lot with that one action. It's interesting to me because when I looked at this game, it reminded me a lot of there is a phenomenal indie game made by a very small team called Kenshi. I don't know if you're familiar with this game. It's a computer I game. Do, I do know it, yeah. Okay, so... This is a game that is known for its brutal difficulty, high learning curve, but the interesting thing to me and what draws me to dust so much is, first of all, the setting, and that everybody pretty much plays by the same rules. So, a powerful NPC that you can interact with in that game, you can get to the same level as them. It'll take time and commitment, but, like, you can do that. Is that kind of the case for Dust 2, where... I wouldn't really say that, but in terms of no, the okay. setting of Kenshi, it is pretty similar with this deserty wasteland area with a strange mix of technology and classical, like, sort of medieval-type melee weapons and armor. Okay. Um, but in terms of how you see NPCs... Dust has this, in terms of its setting at least, less so in its gameplay, but um, mm -hmm. in the setting you are very clearly 
at the whims of these larger-than-life, uh, godlike fi- uh, figures that are the Ascended, the main things that you're going to be prompted to fight against. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about the setting of dust. What is this world? Because you mentioned that it is deserty, and that's, as we've said on the show before, arguably my favorite backdrop for games is deserts and tundras. So let's let's talk about this a little bit. How'd this world come to be? Well, a big part of the game is that no one really knows the full story. Okay. There isn't a ton of lore dumps in, in the game or anything. The section on the lore is about like three pages long right now. It gives you mm-hmm. a basic maybe like two to three paragraph description of the main uh like figures of this world, the places you could you could go. But a lot of it is interpretive in the sense that there are small uh like actually it, within the book they're shown as scraps of paper and uh notes that are handwritten by some sort of explorer from the the Risen Empire, this group that's come back from this strange mysterious dark age that's caused the desertification of the main land of this continent they live in. And a lot of it's built around the idea that you're piecing it together as you go through the book. But the solid set in stone stuff is mainly the start and end uh, or the start and continuation of the Age of Forsaken which is when this big um, wealthy empire full of people who are living their best lives. They have no real natural threats, and they have all their needs taken care of, eventually begins to plateau. And these uh, leaders of this huge nation eventually, through some strange ritual, become the ascended, these godlike figures that could manifest whatever they dream with their minds, and through this process, end up creating this strange, like, less-than-human uh, group of, of beings of Forsaken. They somehow start the this apocalypse that turns the mainland of their continent into a desert, and end up splitting their citizens and the different nations of this world into just three groups, essentially. So a lot of Dust's world is built around the idea that the players and the narrators will kind of be figuring out what happened to it. If you choose to explore that part, I should say, they'll be coming up with that almost together and building that story as as a unit instead of having, I don't know, like, the weave breaking or the fracturing of the world, the events that happen in dust are sort of built around the assumption that you know that long time ago things were better then they collapsed and you're in the post post apocalypse part of this world then as things start to rebuild as it's said in the book you're the aftermath you're what comes after all this grand history, and you know, gotta make your own life in it. That's super cool. I'm really into that. 
you're playing this like neat in between stage where things haven't quite recovered, but they're starting to. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's super cool. And driving that is actually another setting piece, Iker or Icor. What is this stuff, or is it another narrative element that players and narrator will have to use in their game? There's some stuff left to interpretation, but it is a more well-defined aspect of the story. Iker, same as in Greek myth, is the blood of the gods. It's what these uh, old uh, emperors use to transform into Forsaken through their dark ritual that's not very well explained, and you probably have to interpret as you will from the book. Uh, but now it's what courses through their veins. The ascended bleed ichor and drinking it could turn you into one yourself. So some players may seek ichor out themselves then to ascend if they so choose. Mm-hmm. It's uh, mostly an aesthetic element for the story. So okay. there isn't a lot of like mechanical rules for oh, you gotta roll this many dice and do this kind of conflict to, to become ascended. It's more so just um, part of the, I guess, like, uh, feeling of that you are going to attack and dethrone God and drink its blood. And that's <laughs> kind of just <laughs> there as, as a, oh, a thing I, I really like about other games, but something I like to call quotable lore, where okay. the, the implications and someone's knowledge of, like, history and ability to write really well is... Of course, a very important thing for writing lore. But another thing that I really enjoy from things like Warhammer, uh, that is my big example, is when you can just kind of say a statement about it, and it's like, oh, damn, all right, cool, that's a fun statement. That's a, that's a fun thing that, you, that you've presented. And Icar is a big part of this game's quotable lore as just... what it is, yeah, just... The fact that 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 is how the setting works is is meant to convey a theme. It's one of those things that is just a fact of the world. And no arguments, it's just, if I kill God and drink his blood, I'll become the next one. So, once again, super fun. You had mentioned mechanics and stuff. We actually haven't talked about the mechanics of Dust at all yet. So yeah. can you give us a brief overview of, mechanically, how Dust runs? Alright, yeah. Um, well, a lot of things will be familiar if you play tabletop games, you know. You move across the, a, a grid with movement and actions, and you deal damage, and you have health, and stuff like that. The main things that differentiate it between other tabletop RPGs is that is the initiative and stamina mechanics... Initiative, uh, unlike in other games where it is most likely a flat value that determines the order which you move, in Dust, initiative is a resource that you manage. You track it on a d6, minimum one, maximum six, and you roll the beginning of combat. The way turns work is that as soon as your initiative hits six, you get to take one action, and any action is going to modify your initiative. So hitting a guy has a delay of two, uh, and so it will lower your initiative by two, you'll have to wait for it to roll back up to six before you take your next action. 
So along with stamina and the different resources in the game, uh, managing your turn order and action economy is a big part of trying to gain advantage. Where stamina is another uh, regenerating resource that sort of is the twin to initiative. Some things okay. are more costly in stamina, some things will be more costly in initiative, but if you run out of either, you're going to be in a bad spot. Okay. Combat-wise, that sounds to me, it kind of reminds me of the the attack bar gauge from the Final Fantasy franchise, where it fills up, you use it, some of it pushes you further back into initiative, and some of it, like, isn't quite as costly, you'll get to go against sooner. Exactly, yeah. It is, the initiative system is pretty much identical to that, but converted to something that would work better for a tabletop game. Okay, so that's that's combat there, and I'm guessing that's like, combat's kind of like, as you said, a really key important part of Dust because of its tactical nature. What about outside of combat? Are you rolling like charisma stats? Are there things, or is it more of a narrative piece for players and narrators to come up with together? Um, it's very simple. There isn't any any narrative stats or anything. Um, but there are some things gluing it all together. In the game, you roll 2d6 for narrative, with 10 or higher being full success, and 5 or five or lower being a failure, and in between being partial success. Okay. And it's similar to Fate in that way, where there's just three ranks of successes, and you roll for it. And the main things modifying that is you got Fates, and you got Inspiration. Uh, whenever you roll... You can spend inspiration to increase the roll after you already see it. So, uh, it's like I have actually never played Fate because the similar the system is so similar. <laughs> I have heard a lot of things about Fate from developing it. But I'm pretty sure that's basically how Fate points work in Fate games. And your I just realized how the Fates mechanic in the game is how you get those inspiration tokens. Okay. It's a, you write it yourself. It's a short little um, descriptor of a thing your character does. It can be a code, so like a thing you'll never do, or always like be sure to do, like a moral code, something like that. A destiny being something you really want to do, a goal you want to achieve, or a bond, which is a relationship with another person. And whenever you do things that are, you're only doing them because they're like part of your character and they move towards your fates, you get inspiration tokens. Okay. Spend those on your rolls, you use rolls to get more fates, and it's just kind of a loop through that. Mm -hmm. There's some other small mechanics towards that, mainly that you can pick up fates on the fly temporarily, um, and then if you really like them, you can choose to replace your main fates with that, but it's a pretty simple system in the scale of other tabletop games. It's not like D&D or Pathfinder or something, we've got this long list of skills and stats that determine your narrative rules. I think that makes perfect sense for something like this, where the core of it is, like, the, the heart and soul of this game is its unique combat mechanics, it's the setting, and it is seeing what your characters can do in limitations you actually had mentioned previously. So I think having a very simple but 
straightforward, proven, apparently successful. I actually haven't played any fake games myself. System, though, that works for it. One of the things we had talked a little bit about in the beginning, or at least something that you had mentioned when we were doing kind of like our, our pre-show and I was setting things up because of uh, circumstance, <laughs> one of the things you had mentioned there was that this game was supposed to be released a little bit earlier, but during some playtesting and some of the things you learned, you wanted to pull back the release and really fine-tune the game. So what are some things that you learned through playtesting that have kind of gotten implemented in the game? A big thing, and the main reason why I pushed it back really, is something I kind of already knew, but was... I, I didn't check it in close enough for this game, was that I have a bad habit of mechanical mechanicizing, making okay. systems too complex mechanically. Uh, yeah. And the old narrative system was very different from what I've just mentioned, and didn't flow very well in actual play. It was this whole complex system of making bonds with other party members and using those bonds for different bonuses and having all these different roles of like how you interact with people and things like that. That was interesting to design uh, and was something that like worked on paper, but in actual play, it just didn't really flow well for natural conversation. So I ended up completely breaking that down and making something new that worked better for a game that is designed so heavily in combat and couldn't really afford to have more complex systems. It was something that felt really chunky that you've gotten rid of. Exactly, yeah. I think that makes perfect sense, though. Of course, in playtesting, there's also been like um, balance issues for combat, which is always going to come up for any tactical focus game with a lot of like character options and stuff. But uh-huh. that is something I'm going to be working on, uh, no matter what. And it wasn't fully reworked; it's just been tweaked over the course of play. You actually mentioned it there, and I wanted to get into it a little bit. This is a game that provides a number of character options. Can you tell us a little bit about character customization and? how it works versus other games. Gladly. Um, Yeah. On paper, creating a character in this game is very simple. You only really have three choices. That being your occupation, which is what you consider your main class in other games, and picking two aspects, which is basically a big list of subclasses and sets of gear uh, that anyone can access. And you mix these three things together to make your character. Uh, that is almost purely for combat, but the narrative implications for those roles also can be used to get advantage in narrative. So if you're like a mage as your occupation, you could go into narrative and be like, oh, because I'm a mage, I want to do this magic thing and get advantage. And it allows you to roll more dice, get better, better results. But the real complex part is the amount of combinations you could have. I know I did the I did the calculation for funsies one time, and <laughs> technically you could have upwards of like nine hundred combinations of aspects and occupations, which allows for a ton of weird build options. And on top of that, each occupation has a few abilities you could pick from, and the the 
gear you choose to equip from your aspect changes that all up quite a bit. So gear has quite a substantial impact on the game then as well. Yes. Each of the aspects comes with four pieces of gear, which is, you know, weapons, armor, accessories, and they all have weight. The weight is pretty simple. It's a number stat that you have that comes in... I should have mentioned this before, but all of these three choices influence your virtues, which is the five main stats of the game. You've got strength, vitality, uh, athletics, stuff like that, all contribute towards your different secondary stats in the game. Health, stamina, carrying capacity, all of that. Okay. And to balance out equipping weapons and picking different aspects, all of the gear has weight. And if you get too much weight, if you're over-encumbered, you lose your other stats. So it's typically something you don't want to do. Mm, okay. I think that makes a lot of sense. Joel, this is kind of a question that I really haven't had to ask before, because... Most of the people I've <laughs> talked to have been a little bit older, but you're coming at this as designing fairly young, and there is a whole... I don't want to say that... Because the tabletop role-playing game community has become a lot more open and accessible in years, but people get a little bit more hesitant when somebody younger is creating... Can you tell me what it's been like being a young creator in this space? Uh, a big thing is that I'm not super public online. I don't really tell people my, a lot of information about me. I don't have my age public on most social media. So mm-hmm. a lot of people, I'm assuming, just don't really know. Um, friends and family, of course, have been pretty enthused. To like, oh, oh, this is pretty great. Especially people in the tabletop space are like, oh, wow. You're getting into this pretty young. You're doing, you're doing a lot of work here. <laughs> oh wow, you got you got a, a an interview for your, for your second game. And it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> but um, a lot of I I don't really let on to it, you know. I think that's totally fair. There's definitely I feel like a even for me like I'm I'm not that old. I'm twenty twenty seven. I think I I'm pretty sure I'm twenty seven. Uh, it's been a while since I've had to figure that out. Anyways, uh, I'm we're gonna go as twenty seven, and <laughs> <laughs> because I don't remember right now, and there are a number of creators who are only a couple of years older than me, but most people are around my age from what I can tell, and there's definitely like a maybe like a wall might be the best way. It's like an experience thing. And it can be super intimidating, so I'm really glad that you pushed through and not only put out one game already, but you're already working with your second game, and you were kind of one of the first people picked up by Dark After Games, which is something that I wanted to talk a little bit about from what what you can, because obviously not everything you can talk about. What was that like when that was offered to you like to be put on with like a a production label basically i um it's been a bit strange because i'm a person who typically doesn't really i want to say take things too seriously but that's not really the word for it i 
take things how they are. I don't typically plan too far ahead for things, and I don't like, I don't really like to get dramatic or emotional about things. I typically try to stay pretty realistic in whatever I do. So yeah. it's been a lot of people around me being like, oh, this is a, this is a big deal, when it feels kind of like <laughs> we're just getting started. And that yeah. um, a lot of it is going to need to be like, I'm going to need to see some results. Because I know that just because I have people helping me, it's not going to write the game itself. I, I'm, I'm still the one doing this. And mm -hmm. I especially don't want it... This is going to sound like um, bricks and like the, the people in Dark After are like weird or something. But uh, I really want to make sure that I'm not relying on them. Right? I think that's a better way for yeah. to say it. Because uh, I want it to be like my products that I'm getting some help with for the more professional things I don't really know about. Like getting... Uh -huh. Um, information about how I would end up eventually printing my games, or how, like, actually officially publishing things is going to work out for me and all that. Yeah. I think that's a hugely important thing that we should also note here with you and Dark After is that it's it's not like they are... they're they're providing assistance, and that's assistance in things where most people wouldn't have access to how to market their game or like somebody to come and edit or I mean sometimes it's just been like a hey make sure you're posting on your socials to me from what I understand how it's been conveyed a little bit through you a little bit through Rick's is a lot of the relationship is just a way to be kept on track make sure things are running smoothly but from what i understand it's really still you just working on this game yeah pretty much i i i i was a bit um hesitant with phrasing all this because i these these are great people and they've been very very helpful but mm -hmm. i don't want to make it seem like i'm working at like a corporation you know no mm -hmm. No, I think they'd be the first to stand up and say that, that that's not how it works. Definitely. <laughs> um, especially being in that Discord and seeing how excited they are about upcoming things. It, it's, it's exciting. And I'm super glad to see that you're working hard on this and they're providing another space for you to get some eyes on what you're creating. It's, um, I know it's, a lot of it's going to come in once it's actually released, because yeah. with Star and City, they have done a lot to, to help with that, uh, making sure it's posted on drive through and everything, and doing a lot of the things that uh, I don't really know as much about, uh, with all of the professional aspects of it. And uh -huh. I know, especially since Dust is turning out to be a much bigger release, I've gotten a lot more um, press on Twitter and stuff, and... I've got a lot more people involved in it. I'm thinking that's going to be a much bigger thing to work on with like marketing and making sure I have my name out there. Yeah. 
Speaking of marketing, I think one of the most important things to address when we talk about tabletop role-playing games is actually the art. Because the game can be incredible, absolutely stunning, and I've seen this, but the art falls flat and people just don't pick it up or give it a shot. Now, luckily, Dust has arguably some of the coolest art I've ever seen in a tabletop game and I just wanted to know what like are you working with artists like what's that relationship like getting pieces for this I was very lucky Um, (laughs) because this is actually all AI art Um, oh I got into the closed beta for mid journey uh, before Ah. I worked on this and it's open now. You can get it uh, publicly as long as you subscribe to the subscription service. But I got a lot of work in with the um, the stuff that they can provide, and it's an amazing service that is really, especially for things that are more abstract or cryptic uh, as things in this setting, it works phenomenally uh, when you want to work something like that. That is, I would not have pegged this for like a program that you, it looks so intentional. And I'm guessing a lot of that comes down to like a lot of trial and error, but like even the cover, my guess is there's been some slight editing for making sure things work out right, but it's the uniformity of the art. Like that's. I can kind of see it now that you've mentioned it, but it's like, wow, I'm absolutely floored by that. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they have like, um, like user-based preferences or anything, but yeah, like the consistency of what I can get to fit the style that I've already established with the cover and all the early pieces is really amazing. Uh, it all fits in so well, just scrolling through. Yeah, the two that really stick out for me is, first of all, the cover, with how, like, wispy it is and everything like that, but then there is this picture of what some sort of combatant with what looks like a pickaxe weapon, and they look like they're the exact same, like, that weapon style looks like it's on multiple people, so I just assumed... Like, that's rad. <laughs> I'm I'm genuinely floored by that. And how did you find out about that then? Because I know that AI art is becoming more popular. But how how did you get involved with that in the uh, the closed beta? Well, the main thing is that I am I don't have a lot of money. <laughs> I haven't for a while. Yep. And even though for a project that I don't think I really should be talking about here, because if it ends up being a release, it's going to be way later on. But for that uh, project I've been working on for a few years now, I did commissions and stuff. Eventually I realized it was just like, I can't afford that, especially for multiple games. Going back to that project, I definitely will be continuing to commission artists because I do believe that uh, 
if you can afford to pay artists, you should, no matter what. Uh, it yeah. is a super hard, like, business to live off of, and they're super talented. It's something I, I can never do myself, or I know a lot of artists would get mad at me saying that because it's like you got you just got practice, but it's something that I don't think I'll, I'll ever be able to put the time into just because I have so many other interests, and yeah you can't really replicate a lot of our styles with AIR, especially with the more sort of high-action, I guess, like, anime-esque look that I'm going for for some of these games. Yeah. But when I was making Star and City, a lot of the art, or all of the art, really, is stock photography that I've edited in, um, like, Photoshop to have this high-contrast uh, red and black aesthetic that the rest of the book also runs off of. And when I was looking into ways to get like stock art, uh, stock images, I eventually came across people talking about AI art. And that eventually, when I was following people with that, I ended up seeing things from the Midjourney Twitter, where they show a lot of their things that they uh, generate with the program, and saw that it was a beta program. I ended up putting in my submission for the beta, and... A few weeks later, I got back from them and was able to join the Discord where, uh, in at least in the closed beta, you would be able to generate things and make your accounts from there and stuff. Okay. And, like, from what I know about Midjourney, it's, it's, it's still in a trial phase, I should say. It's not really released, but it's in an open beta now. Mm-hmm. It's still super cool. I love that just because we're on the art and that stuff, I'm guessing that it took a lot of takes to try and find pieces that you wanted, or did you find word combinations that helped you get what you wanted? Uh, Mostly from looking at other people in the Discord's prompts and how they did it. I, got, I caught on to it pretty quick. It gives pretty good results if you're... if you stay, if you stay open, right? Uh, I know okay. a lot of people who use it are want very specific things for the product, and they're not like willing to accept anything less. But a part of I kind of just took it as it was. I knew that, especially if I was making a more cryptic and grim setting, it would be able to generate a lot of these strange images that would work well with it. And I most most of what I got generated worked out on like the first or second try, and I probably could get good art for other settings and stuff if I really believe, but I don't think I really have the patience for that. I'm not sure I'd I'd use AI art for anything but this setting, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's totally fair. That makes perfect sense to me. Joel, we're starting to run a little bit low on time here. So I got a couple more questions for you to kind of round this out. So what advice could you give to designers who are working on something, but they have no prior experience, they don't really know where to start? I would just say that you've got to start. Um, Even if it's bad, like no matter what it is, start at like the basics. Even if you're writing down just very simple notes on like a world it doesn't need to be a full game or anything it doesn't need to be a full complete product but uh like how i started off with D homebrew something you already know just start writing something 
because no matter what, the first few things you're going to do, you're probably not going to like that much. I know I'm a super big perfectionist, and um, if I didn't take the plunge, I wouldn't be able to do it myself. That's, yeah. We um, have a saying on the show, and it's been back from episode one, which is strike while the iron's hot. Precisely. And that, yeah, that basically just meant, like, as soon as you get inspiration, do it. Like, go for it. So I'm, I'm happy to see that everything is still working well for that. So, or not working well, but it's true no matter what, where you go. Yeah. <laughs> In all industries, it's true. Yeah. Joel... Where can people find out more about you and Dust? I post a lot on my Twitter, of course. But Mm -hmm. the main thing that you could really do is to join the Discord. It's entirely public. I make sure the links I donate for it stay working forever. But I'm incredibly active there and make sure to answer any question. I've got some wonderful playtesters and people there who have been great help for the games and I am sure to credit people who are really involved and I'm just I'm fully open for anyone joining in, giving their feedback, or just wanting to talk or look at the game where you can read most of it publicly on that Discord server. Excellent. As always, audience, those links are going to be down in the description below. Go and check out Dust. Joel has been working super hard on this, and it looks super cool. I'm really excited about Dust in like a lot of ways. So, And that's not just because like an hour ago I found out that we only live like an hour and a half away from each other, and it's exciting knowing somebody is that close and creating really cool stuff. Joel, thank you so much for joining me on the show this week. I can't thank you enough for inviting me on. It's been so wonderful. (laughs) Absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure. And audience, thank you so much for joining us. Joel and Dust are scheduled to launch very soon. So go and follow them on their Discord, on their Twitter, and keep an ear out for when this game goes live because it's going to be really freaking cool and i'm so excited to see what happens until then though take care of yourselves have a good night and i'll see you on the next one bye thank you so much to joel for joining me this week on the show dust is a super cool game and something i'm really excited about the grid-based combat sounds like a nice change of pace and i'm always down for that desert setting Go give Joel a follow and make sure that you're out there listening for when this game goes live. And listeners, thank you so much for joining me this week on the podcast. We are, shockingly, getting up to almost 1,800 downloads now, and that has me very excited. I'd love if we could get there by the end of August, but we'll have to see. If you like the show, though, and you want to hear more, why not leave a review somewhere on the internet or go tell a friend? Word of mouth is the only way that we grow here, and I'd love to continue growing with all of you because you're all so amazing, and I've had so much fun with this. Next week, we are going to be talking about a game that actually first started out in the Goblin Game Jam. 
and I think a lot of you are going to be really excited about this one. Until then, though, take care of yourselves, and I'll see you on the next one. Bye!